Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 34, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. And the Becky Nader and I are going to do a little intro here to an interview I did with Andrea Severson on the eve of the release of her new book called Alter Girl, which is a powerful book about the transformation that Jesus brings in your life when you have been living sort of a, a dead religious life, and you're sort of resigned yourself to that for the rest of your life, and then Jesus intrudes into that and brings life and freedom. So this book is called Alter Girl, and we're going to talk with Andrea about that. Since the book's really about uh, sort of, you know, kind of a Broadway church baggage, like the, the baggage we collect along the way, if you've kind of grown up in the church or even experienced the church off and on, uh, we all have our little stories of stuff we didn't like or stuff we wish we could put down forever, or the strange culture of churches and and how we have a sort sort of a tenuous relationship with church in general. And so I thought it'd be good for Becky and I to just to kind of kick off this interview to talk a little bit about church baggage. And Becky's got an interesting way to get at this. I always have. I, I always like to bring a little bit of playfulness into <laughs> into these things. I mean, obviously, we know that the church has been in decline. And, you know, we work for a company, Group Publishing. Our founders wrote a book called Why Nobody Wants to Go to Church Anymore uh, five years ago, probably. Um, so it's not a new release. This has been a problem for a while. Um, I just went and saw Beth Moore talk for the Living Proof Conference, and she spent a great deal of time talking about why um, people aren't going to church. So we know it's we know it's an issue. Um, and there's a lot of serious parts of it, but I thought we should just maybe make it a little bit more fun. So this was uh, one of our coworkers um, was working on an article. And so she wrote on a, out on Facebook to ask people kind of the most awkward people that you encounter in the church. Oh, I, so, hope, I hope they didn't name names. They didn't name names. Because I might be on that list. No, I didn't see your name. Oh, but, thank God. But, you know... It, it could have happened. Could have happened. So this one is the one who curiously asks you where your absent family member is under the guise of wanting to pray for them if they aren't okay. Uh, this <laughs> is from a single millennial, and she said, the mom who's constantly trying to hook you up with her son or daughter. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, another one said, the one who wants to share other people's issues with you under the guise of prayer requests. Mm-hmm. The one who announces loudly that they haven't seen you here in ages um, in front of everybody. <laughs> you reprobate. <laughs> the person who's singing way t- with way too much vibrato. Um, <laughs> the person who's talking to a group of friends stops mid-sentence, so everyone turns to look at you, and they introduce themselves to you for the ninth time as you were trying to escape to your car. Awkward. <laughs> So those are just a couple of fun ones. You know what's funny about that too is that if you stand back and think about even those those goofy things, that they're all sort of um, violations of relationship on one on one level or another. They're they're just relationships gone awry or relationships that are sort of 
yucky or poisonous or whatever. And 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 that really is. I mean, in a, this is a funny way, but in the umbrella for our baggage with churches is that it's it's really when relationships have gone bad. Yeah, it's for kind some of the reason. things that you would never do if you were just hanging out with a group of friends. And it's a bold it's a bold thing to do to be a part of a church community because you're intending, uh, by definition to have intimate relationships, intimate vertically with Jesus and intimate horizontally with each other. And that's kind of a, wow, that that is fraught with potential for things going awry in the midst of it, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk with Andrea about her own story and her experience with her own church baggage and how Jesus intruded into that life. Let's listen to my interview with Andrea Severson. So so one of the things that uh, just struck me, I was just going to say this to you, was the thing that I think that surprised me the most about your book was how funny it was, and because it's a quote-unquote serious subject, and it's a memoir, mm-hmm. basically, and it's a, kind of an unusual memoir because it's a memoir of your quote-unquote religious life, but it was funny, and but woven into kind of a, a really... If you if you slow down and consider your story, there's a lot of heartbreak in your story as well, relative to community, attaching to community and stuff. So, I just wondered if uh, what uh, when you're writing, I mean, this is this is your first book, right? First book like this. I've written two business books, which were very matter of fact and yeah. a piece of cake compared to this. So, so when you were writing it, you intentionally included. All of these moments, and there's plenty of them that are just funny in in a in, in a voice that is funny. So, how did that aspect of all of this, the the funny part, in the midst of the serious part, how does that integrate in your own life? I mean, because we all have difficult things that happen or challenges that we face, and we don't always face them with good humor, and that's shot through the book. So, anyway, I was just gonna ask you how, how that played a role in all this. Yes, I would not say I grew up a funny or humorous person. I was pretty serious, type A, driven, very serious. Dean, my husband, is much more laid back, and his family, his mom and dad, um, have an awesome sense of humor. And just the ability to look at their themselves and their life through a humorous lens, and Dean has brought that into our marriage, and that's a huge gift. It's a gift of holy laughter, I guess, but it's really been helpful to not take things that are serious so seriously sometimes. I, I was really uh, cut from a pretty serious cloth, and so that <laughs> is—I'm um, thrilled that you found kind of joy in the writing. You you describe yourself as a type A personality when you read your background, your career background, you can see it in you. Like, wow, this is a woman that you could really count on. If you gave her something to do, she would kill it. If she you know, she took charge, she would she would not let that challenge, whatever it is, defeat her. You'd be very intent and determined in it. You, it comes through in the book, and it um, and it comes through in uh, you know just talking with you. So th- this relationship with Jesus could easily become something like what it looked like for the Pharisees, who were very intent on getting on top of everything, mm-hmm. of killing it. You know, like, I, I got the law wired wired here. I got it dialed in. So I would guess that the temptation to become like a Pharisee, like, I got this dialed in, 
for a type A personality would be a temptation. Has it been? I think I've gone the other way, Rick. I feel like I was a Pharisee, and now I'm not. And I don't know what a not Pharisee is, except that I have, walking away from religion into the heart of faith, I have relaxed into a friendship. And the personal relationship with Jesus has become like a hanging out with a good friend. And it's let me take off this big, heavy backpack that I had filled with all the encyclopedias and the rule books and all of that. And it's I've just set it aside. And now we're just having a casual conversation that's intimate and real and authentic. So I've gone, I think it feels like I've gone um, hopefully into non-Pharisee mode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think from uh, uh, from my background and perspective, when you're in a place like that, where you've uh, maybe had a lot of baggage, that you've, you kind of have this awakening moment, and you leave behind something that, in retrospect, you like, wow, I had a lot of baggage I was carrying back there. Mm-hmm. W- one question I wondered about as I read your book was, what, what's the baggage that you left behind, mm-hmm. and what's the baggage that you took with you because it was valuable to take with you? Do you know what I mean? Yes. The good and the not so good. I refer to that in the book in certain places as what was overtaught and undertaught. Hmm. I have a girlfriend that uses, because uh, we'll talk about baggage as things, you know, that are weighing us down, and she'll say, well, I really like the term a little overnight suitcase. And so um, in thinking about my faith life with the little overnight suitcase, the things that I've packed up and I don't need or use anymore is a lot of the ritual, a lot of the... Um, in my Catholic upbringing, I had lots of uh, very holy things that we did, whether novenas, stations of the cross, lots of statues and candles and um, all sorts of uh, beauty and mystery and physical beauty as well as beautiful sacramental disciplines. And I would say um, I don't have such an attachment to those anymore because now instead of maybe seven really holy separate, significant sacraments, I feel life, all of life is sacramental. So a meal we might share, um, a celebration of sorts, a walk, um, all sorts of things have become sacramental. What does that mean, sacramental, especially for those not growing up in the Catholic Church? It sounds like a religious word that we've heard before, but then if we slow down and pay attention to it, do we? I, I think most people wouldn't be able to say what sacramental means. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to you? To me... I don't know if it's another word for holy, but it's the fact that you're doing it with Jesus. It's part of your life that you are offering to him. So the idea that I've been altered, and I spell it A-L-T-E-R, is a way of saying that I now bring the altar of my life into everything I do, into the workplace, into Target, into the neighborhood. Um, Just everyday life is being the church versus going to a church. So the baggage is um, really all that that used to mean. I, I don't. I didn't bring a lot of that with me, uh, and I really liked all of that. I love the the beauty, the ritual, the the uh, sacred space. Now I feel like I'm I'm seeing it everywhere I go. I don't need to go to a place that has that. Yeah. In the, in the Jesus-centered life, I talk about living a deep, decompartmentalized life. So that a lot of us, um, even now, even, even people that we might say are um, active Christians, they go to church every week and so forth, they still think in compartmental ways, like this is now my church compartment, and now 
on Monday I'm going to go back to my non-church compartments, and they don't kind of see their life as decompartmentalized without these walls around it. How did that happen for you exactly? How did you—because you lived a very compartmentalized life. I did, and I think this whole journey for me has been two things. One, um, God is such a God of surprises. Like, he just—I felt like took me kind of like a Saul into Paul type of situation where I had all the— I had all the— knowledge, and I had all the, um, I thought I was doing everything right, and I was sort of top of my Catholic game, shall we say, and I thought nothing of it. I thought, I am really religious, and I love being religious. I love church. I love all of that. And then he started peeling, God started peeling all these things away, because when I moved out to Colorado, the churches were um, much simpler that we were going to, just aesthetically. Uh, Protestant churches usually are much, much kind of quieter. And um, God started taking these things away from my church experiences, and I realized I liked the decluttered um, life that he was sharing with me. And so a God of surprises, everything I thought I really loved and was attached to, he, God was showing me, doesn't, doesn't have to be like this, Andrea, it can be different. And then um, the other big part of it was constantly getting me out of my comfort zone. And... Um, there's a lot of wonderful comfortability to church life, that compartmentalized 45 to hour long service. You go, it's part of your routine. And I enjoyed that and thought that was it for many, many years. And now I feel like, gosh, um, God did not call us to be comfortable. Um, there's just not many comfortable verses in the Jesus is teaching. I think he's constantly pushing us out of our comfort zone and then surprising us when he pushes us out. He's with us in all of that discomfort, and he'll show us a new and different way. That's good. So, and I asked before, so you talked about some of the baggage you had to leave behind. What did you take with you out of that world Mm -hmm. that actually still is sustaining for you or or infecting how you live your life with Jesus? Mm Mm-hmm. On a um, positive side, so much of my upbringing, just all of my education, I, I had a beautiful foundation, beautiful foundation. And so all of that I, I take with me. I can't imagine not starting my life as I did. So I bring sacramentalness, uh, spiritual disciplines, um, all of that into my life now. Um, and maybe still a little guilt. I'd say I still have a small overnight suitcase of guilt um, <laughs> when I'm not doing things the way uh, I thought I had to do them in the past. Yeah. And so that, so coming from a, a religious background that involved heavy doses of discipline mm-hmm. with a personality that is naturally disciplined and attuned to it, to discipline in general, what have you learned through these? seasons of your life about your relationship with discipline and how has it been challenged or morphed into something uh, maybe different mm-hmm. than you lived before? What, what has been your relationship with discipline? Well, it changed. Discipline was always... Um, I, I had the discipline of very good, loving parents, so I was disciplined. School was a disciplined uh, structure. And so I have I have a lot of good things to think about and say about discipline, but I never um, really understood it the way I do now without the um, work of Richard Foster and the celebration of discipline, the idea that having certain 
uh, spiritual practices as part of your life, whether it's silence and solitude, community, fasting, different things, that you don't have to do these in order to gain status with God or to get in better with God, uh, all that is gone. I do those things now strictly because I love spending time that way, and I find it nurtures my soul and um, is very much taught in the Bible. I I don't do any kind of have-tos. And so discipline has become a positive word of things I want to do and get to do. Yeah. So if you think about uh, people who are kind of wired like you, who get things done and can be counted on to get things done and are very detail-oriented, very focused, determined people, maybe you could offer some perspective through your journey to somebody who's just like you about what you've learned about a relationship with Jesus that is... uh, I guess the best word to say it would be relaxed. Yes. Not always on purpose, not always determined, not always Mm -hmm. take that hill. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about a relaxed relationship with Jesus? Mm. I've never used those two words together, but that's exactly the right word. Um, Jesus says, come and abide with me. And to me, abide is just a biblical word that means hang out. You know, just come be with me. And he doesn't say, before you be with me, you've got to do this, this, and this, and you've got to get the new outfit, and you've got the shiny shoes, and everything has to, all your ducks have to be in a row. He just says, come be with me, or he goes and is with that person before they even know what's, what's coming up next to him. I'm thinking about the woman at the well. He just enters into her world. That was all such good news for me. I, I write about learning about um, Jesus really just... Uh, the, the picture I had for me personally was taking this heavy backpack off my back of all the, the books and the texts and the trying harder and all that, and I just let it and I let it down. And actually, I had this um, vision of Jesus just opening up that backpack and pulling all this stuff out. And it's like, wow, you're like carrying a lot of stuff that you don't have to. And uh, he kind of took it all away from me, and he's like, I just want you to be with me. Just just do life with me. We're in it together. And um, I'll be with you every step of the way. You don't have to be so darn proactive. Um, I'm actually going ahead of you, and I got it. I got it, Andrea. You can relax and um, live into my gifts, my fullness. So what does that feel like for someone to relax and let him do some of the things that you are hardwired to do yourself? Mm -hmm. How does that actually work for you? Mm -hmm. It's a constant... um, and, and I, I hate saying it's still happening at this stage of my faith life, but it's a constant trust walk. It's like, okay, I am supposed to get out of the driver's seat and let Jesus drive. I'm supposed to be a passenger. I have to really trust that he's a better driver than me. And um, I'm learning how to do that still, but I'm I think I've made a little progress in that I'm letting him take the wheel sooner on things than I ever did before. Mm. And it's it's just like, wow, why wouldn't Jesus have your best interests at heart, Andrea? And he may have a whole different way of the end game that you can't even predict, that that whole Ephesians 3.20, like God can do things that you can't even think about. We're sort of limited by our type A brain, and we think we've got all the variables, and we've thought through the strategic plan, and Jesus has a plan that would blow that out of the water. Mm. And and when I see those things happen in my life, that something that happens I couldn't have even planned, predicted, guessed at, again, this God of surprises. I'm like, wow, I should have given you the wheel years ago. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. So I know from just talking with you a little bit, but reading your book and loving your book, um, 
that you're a fidelity person, meaning when you make a commitment, it's a it's a commitment. I mean, it's part of your identity mm-hmm. to be uh, to keep fidelity with your commitments. And yet, your story has also been that you have dived into the, your church commitments, and you're 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 like the the uh, the congregant that pastors dream of, because they're able, they're capable, they're passionate, and they get involved because they they act out what they believe, and that's clear in in every one of your seasons of life as you've connected to these churches. So I can feel the pain in your book when you would leave one of these places for whatever reason. So that that sense of fidelity, I'm wondering how your fidelity to a church community is related to your overarching fidelity to Jesus, meaning you know, sometimes people will uh, leave a church and they'll say, I don't really even need a church, I just need Jesus. What is the relationship between a fidelity to a church community and your fidelity to Jesus, if that makes sense? I hope I can answer this well. I have total fidelity to Jesus. I think I used to have fidelity to church. In, in, in my case of growing up to Catholic church, it was just what I was raised in. And Jesus maybe might have even taken a back seat to my fidelity to church. I didn't really realize that at the time. But now... Jesus as best friend, um, fidelity to that relationship, I still need church. I still want to be the church and need church. I need the support of like-minded fellow Christ apprentices walking with me, supporting me in prayer, encouraging me, um, and I hopefully do that with and with them as well. So it isn't an either-or. The hierarchy is definitely clear. Um, it's fidelity to Jesus and um, trying to be, be the best church um, in my daily life. And as you've kind of moved in and out of these relationships with church communities, and, and I have, I've been a, 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 a follower of Jesus a long time, connected to churches throughout my life, and there are these times, as you describe even in your book, where you move from passionate, wholehearted commitment to a body to eventually leaving that body for something else. And it can leave scars, and the scars can build up. Mm-hmm. You can kind of have this sense of, do I really want to do this again? Mm-hmm. Do I really want to invest my heart in this again? There's this tem- tem- season of temptation of disconnection. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering, um, what is your relationship with your scars mm-hmm. relative to your church relationships that you've had in the past, how, how do you deal with those as part of your everyday life of, of following Jesus? How do you process the tension even created by some of those scars? That's a really good question. I think the scars are, are there, but really realizing that like the world we live in, church life is broken and beautiful. And Dean and I have had some amazing experiences in church and some not-so-amazing experiences with church. And so um, I think at the beginning I was wondering where to put all of that, and now I just feel like church isn't going to be perfect until we're in heaven, and we're we're certainly not looking for perfect church or anything like that, but the idea that uh, things are broken and beautiful here, and we as people are broken and beautiful, and we're 
we may have scarred others with some of our decisions, and that was never anything we meant to do. Um, but the pain of leaving a group of people that we invested and went deep with, many of those folks are still in our life. I feel like our church family is just scattered, and it's not all under one shingle that says XYZ Church. We are, we've got church friends in lots of different places that we've remained pretty close with. Yeah. And we all, I think it's universal that we all seem to be craving something from our church connection. We know that it's important as part of our life of following Jesus that we connect to other people in relationship. And so we're craving something, especially when it's new, because that's one of the themes in your book as well, the kind of the story of the new season of connection Mm -hmm. with a church body. And I really resonated with all of the hope and possibility and excitement and the difference and the challenge and the upending and the growth that happens during those stages. So the, this thing that we're we're looking for, we seem to taste it early on in those connections, and then it's not it's it's guaranteed that we're going to be disappointed somewhere along the way, and sometimes profoundly disappointed. So what what is it? What is the something you think we are craving mm-hmm. in our connection to these church bodies, and why why is it so difficult to find mm-hmm. in a church for a lifetime? For instance, why is it so rare to hear that somebody has been connected to one church body their entire adult lifetime? Uh, it just you just don't hear that very often. So what's the something we're looking for, mm-hmm. and why does it seem so hard to find? I don't. I think the something is probably different for everyone at the different seasons of their life. Sometimes people need a great place to bring their children because that's the most important season and stage that they're in. Um, sometimes people need um, a healing place. Um, so I think it depends. What we're looking for depends on our season. But I think what we're always looking for, at least what I was looking for, was a group of like-minded people friends of God, shall we say, that could walk with me, walk with me at that particular life stage, and that we were like-minded in in our um, desire to serve God in new creative ways, not maybe traditional ways that church plugs people in. You could usher, you could, you know, do the readings, you could be in worship team, all of these different things. That may work for a lot of people, but that wasn't what Dean and I were looking for. We were really looking for meaningful ways to serve. And when churches are just starting, it seems like there's lots of those ways and that you could really use your unique giftings mm. and your unique callings. And uh, some of our heartbreak came with church when they tried to professionalize that and kind of move out the volunteers and bring in paid people when we had all these great gifted people internally that were on fire for God. So maybe um, it's different things people are looking for, for me, like-minded people that I could learn from, grow from, fail with. Um, that seems to be uh, what I'm looking for, ways to serve um, and creative ways to worship God in my everyday life. Mm-hmm. So leaving kind of as a sojourner from this compartmentalized life of your upbringing to this shocking almost unbelievable path that you took out of that life, because you couldn't imagine yourself outside of that life, and then you are outside of that life into something new. What would you say have been some of the surprising things that you've discovered and learned about Jesus as you moved out of that compartmentalized life into the life that you've been living? What 
What have you uh, learned or ex- learned or experienced about the heart of Jesus that has that that you didn't know and kind of took you off guard or surprised you about him? Well, the whole idea of Jesus's best friend just just I capitalized the B and I capitalized the F because I had Jesus as holy redeemer, savior, all sorts of holy names. Best friend, I don't think there's a better name um, that threw me off guard, that Jesus wanted to be my friend and is crazy about me. Like the whole belovedness, that just didn't shine through in my education. Jesus is so caring of your individual soul and gets you so much. Like that was just a big surprise. And, Mm -hmm. And bringing all of my life to Jesus, the mundane and the majestic, and he will help me solve all of those issues. Gosh, I thought the Lord of the universe was too too big and important to be, you know, um, talking to me about some of my, my daily things. So the heart of Jesus is just so um, merciful, so real, so caring, that he really, really is concerned about everything that happens to me. And that love then, I hope, pours out of me and shines through in ways I can care about the people in my life. And you've mentioned several times that you and your husband, Dean, were looking for ways to serve. And uh, part of your identity, even in your, your following Jesus and connected to communities of followers of Jesus, is in this idea of an outward expression of it, serving so not everyone feels that way when they enter a community. They're not looking to serve. They're looking to be served. So what's the difference? Why is that a value in your marriage and in your approach to living your life with Jesus? Why is service such a big deal for you? Well, Jesus, maybe second title after best friend is servant leader. And I feel like everywhere in the Gospels, Jesus is serving others. Everywhere. He just shows up with the towel in the basin. He gives us his whole life. I think a problem in today's church is that it is turned inward into those four walls. And people are coming saying, how can I be served? Um, As opposed to saying, how can I serve others? And so it then becomes about worship wars or all sorts of internal things that get people uh, discombobulated. And that none of that really matters. That's not why Jesus um, came to the earth. Uh, we're supposed to be outward bound and let our light shine. And one of the ways we let light shine is to help others. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of serving each other has been a marriage theme. Our pastor, when he married us, said, look to Jesus. And that was really his biggest bit of marriage advice, those few words. And I've been blessed with a servant hearted husband in marriage has taught me a lot. And I think churches, the idea of coming to church to get something, to be fed, I hear that a lot. I, I need to be fed either with the sermon or the music. I'm not sure that it's really about us. We're supposed to go to worship God and to serve others. Mm-hmm. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think that's gotten, unfortunately, reprioritized in our church today. All right, thanks for listening. Um, Also remember that you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today, but in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com website. You can find our podcast section, and you're looking for Season 2, Episode 34. 
This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. We'll talk again next time. Bye.